If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello, everybody. Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 70 of the Early Excellence podcast. This week, we're joined by Lee Dunn, who is acting head of school at Oldbury on Seven C of E VC Primary School in South Gloucestershire. The school is a small school and it's part of the Bridge family of schools. As part of our discussion, Lee describes the school's journey of improvement and the positive impact on the whole school community. start off with, uh, officially my title is uh, acting uh, head of school. Um, so I work under an executive head teacher, uh, a lady called Amanda Luke, uh, who I worked with um, at a, a local, uh, another local primary school called Alverston uh, Primary School. Um, and Alverston is a really successful uh, village school. It's been um, well run, well managed, and, and it has a really strong um ethos and culture uh, that's been really well honed and developed over the last sort of 25, 30 years. Uh, Amanda has been the um, head there, I think, for the last eight or nine years and has worked in the school for 25 years under every possible uh, role. Um, so pre-pandemic, um, we were exploring uh, kind of opportunities to, to kind of partner with local schools that might need uh, leadership work. Uh, and uh, at the time, Albury came up as a school that um, was going through a bit of a transitional stage. It's a small uh, rural school um, that sits on the kind of outskirts of South Gloucester uh, and between, uh, but falls in South Gloucester, but it's actually Gloucester Diocese. Uh, it's just off the River Severn. You can see the seven crossings from where we are. We've got the most beautiful kind of rural setting. Um, I mean, if we could sell the land that the school was on, I'm sure we'd make millions. Um yeah, so Amanda uh, Amanda was approached to take on this exec head role across two schools. Um, one, because Alverstone was a strong school, and two, because Albury uh, was in need of um, some significant support. Um, so initially, the, Amanda took that on as a caretaking role, uh, and part of that journey with me as a deputy was looking at uh, Albury and, and kind of discussing what was needed. Uh, and at the time, we uh, had that realisation that maybe Albury needed uh, quite a top-heavy leadership, so um, I I was seconded over to Albury um, initially for a year, which has now been two years, um, to put in that uh, kind of high-level leadership that the school probably needed at the time. Um, we kind of fit uh, a, a rural community, but we're on the edge of a kind of market village uh, in, in Thornbury, um, which is, so we have a kind of mixed catchment. We, it goes from... Uh, usual kind of built up urban areas to, to really like large properties which have kind of paddocks and swimming pools and those sort of things so and, and everything in between so it's a really interesting catchment um the school when i started only had uh, 38 children so it's it's particularly small and quite you quite um different to Alveston, which is a one form entry school um the school is two classes, or uh, historically it was three, um, but declining numbers meant that the, to keep budgets in, in line, they had to reduce to a two-class school, which is comprised of a key stage one uh, with EYFS and then a separate key stage two, which has years three, four, five, and six. 
Um, and, and it's been like that for, for, for a few years now. I think it's, this is the fourth year where it's been two classes. Um, so it's, it's quite a challenge. Uh, and coming in, there was a lot to unpick uh, and explore uh, around that two-class model and, and what the school needed. Yeah, really, that's really interesting. I, I, um, it strikes me as well that just as you were talking, you, we're talking about um, such a small school and that that, that to, to most people will sound idyllic. You know, that, that idea of having sort of less than 40 children and kind of two classes and you think, you know, rolling hills and the River Severn, it sounds incredibly idyllic. But I'm sure actually underneath that, I should think there's quite a bit of challenge there. You know, that when you come in to try and lead that, that actually that's, that's not necessarily that straightforward. Does that make sense? Yeah, on paper, it sounds beautiful. Um, I mean, the setting is absolutely gorgeous. The, the uh, Walking outside of the school buildings, there's some of the most beautiful uh, aesthetics that you can imagine in school area. So I'm just turning off the photocopier. <laughs> That's fine. We're trying to turn off the photocopier. There we go. Um, yeah, so the, the, the school settings uh, is, is absolutely beautiful and beautiful. To, to walk around the local area it is beautiful. We're surrounded by a really wonderful community. Uh, the village itself it comprises of the school, the church, the pub, uh, and the local community-run um, shop. And, and that's pretty much it in the village. It's uh, it's not. It, there's, I think this, the school, the church prayer is even just includes those four items because it's such a small community. But coming in as a leadership, I think the previous head. Um, would be able to talk about this a lot more around the the difficulties of leading a small rural school as a standalone head teacher. Um, but as a partnering with another school, this it, it helped a lot with some of the real challenges of small schools, because as a as a head of school coming in, the layers of leadership that you'd have in a even a single form entry school just don't exist. Um, we the you are the caretaker, you are the the head of school, you you you're you're doing lunch duties, you you cover possibly every job that you can imagine uh, as a as a member of staff in a school. The flip side of that is that I know every single child and every family really well. Uh, and that's the joy of having such a small school is that you can spend time really getting to know your, your families and your community, which is really special. Yeah, no, absolutely. Interestingly, yesterday in in doing some preparation for, for my conversation with you this morning, um, I went onto your website and so I had a look at um, the different things, lots of different things on the website. And one of the things was the par- parental part where um, there's a, a section, of course, where um, you've got quotes from parents talking about their children's experience of, of being at the school. Many of them were new, new children, new parents, and their initial impressions and, and that kind of moving from another school, perhaps, to your school. And so many of them mentioned that actually, you know, that, that Mr. Dunn is there kind of welcoming you, welcoming you into the school. He's, you know, there on site. He knows every child. He's uh, got such a good relationship with the with the children and good relationship with the the families and the parents and that 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 was a real clincher for so many of the parents and I can understand that you know as a parent myself I can completely understand that you know you you want to feel that actually somebody really knows your child don't you so I, yeah I, I which is a real benefit of having such a small school isn't it Yeah I think so I think that you, it's also about your own priorities as as a leader about what what's important to you because 
the reality of a small school is that you're spinning a lot of plates and some of them you get those external pressures that the as a profession we know all about those external pressures um uh, the the uh, school when we took it on was in the offset window so that has it had a massive impact on, on the kind of well-being of, of as a leader of that pressure of you know offset are you in and, and what that means and so that can very quickly become overwhelming so having those external pressures on school and knowing all of the jobs that need doing in school you can misprioritize sometimes and and for me it's always been about this school is really integral to its community it's a really important part of these this the community and and our families chose a small school they chose some of them are from the village lots are not from the village and they're choosing to travel some of them are traveling 35 minutes to get here because they because of what the school offers so investing in family every school wants to invest in family but we can just maybe do it in a slightly different way because if i'm spending 10 15 minutes having a chat with a teacher in the morning with a parent in the morning if you do that across the term I can speak to every parent for a good 15, 20 minutes and really get to know what's going on in their life and get to know them, which will then helps with the education of their children and the relationship building. Whereas in a bigger school, if you've got 200, that becomes across a year. So your conversations can be a little bit deep, deeper and a bit more meaningful. We've had lots of new babies in our, in our community recently. So spending time talking to them about that is really important because when I come into the school and talk to the children... I know their experience of what it's been like and whether they stayed at grandma's for, for a couple of nights and, and how did they feel about mum when mum was in hospital and, and you can have those conversations. So the connection's much easier to achieve uh, in a smaller school, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think also that um, that relationship with parents where you're having perhaps fairly sort of uh, short conversations potentially, you know, every day, mean that you're building up a relationship so that actually when somebody has got a bit of an issue and or a bit of a concern they are much more likely to come in and 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 chat to you or it will come up in in conversation whereas actually you know sometimes in a bigger school it can be bottled up and it can it can just sort of come out at a parents evening or you know that sort of thing it's not it's it's a different kind of dynamic isn't it i suppose yeah i think so and i think initial stages so i'm talking about now how Parents will talk to me every morning on the gate. Um, when we first uh, started working with Albury, there was a lot of hesitation. Parents had uh, a really beloved head teacher that they had a lot of faith in who, who retired. Um, and me being very different, um, uh, firstly being a, a male, uh, where they'd had a, a previously uh, female leaders, that was a big change. Um, shifting over from another school was very different. And there was lots of concern around where we just going to try and carbon copy the successful school down the road. Um, so there was a lot of conversations, parents, about not losing the identity and culture of the school. Um, but alongside that, we also knew that coming in, that there were certain things that we really wanted to hold on to, but there was lots of changes that needed to be made to make this school really fit for its community. So we, the school went through quite a significant amount of change quite early on, but we always held, kind of went back to those core values of what this school is is about. And I think that it took a while for parents to to see that we actually we had the right intentions um, and we were building something really quite special. Yes, it's kind of building trust as much as anything, isn't it? That change is a, it change can be 
really quite stressful for, for, for lots of people, can't it? You know, it, it, any kind of change can be really quite stressful. Um, but knowing that you've got some an element of trust within that, that actually we, we're kind of going to take everybody with us and we know the reason why we're doing it and having a clear vision for it, I think helps with that process. So, yeah, no, interesting. Very interesting. So, um, so you... You, you initially then you, you talked about that kind of you you've joined the school as as acting head and there were some issues that you'd identified then can you take us through that that process then from from kind of starting off what's that what have you identified in terms of in terms of need and and kind of what were the initial steps you then took are you able to do that yeah so so initially coming in um a lot alongside uh, Amanda, the exec head, uh, and spending time about understanding about first of all what sort of leadership structure needs to be in place, um, because on paper a small two class school could could the leadership structure could take a number of different forms. Things like it becoming a satellite school, having a part time leader come in two days a week, having a senior teacher in school. Um, so we, we we had to really explore what was actually needed, uh, and at the time we decided that a top heavy leadership was was really important um one to build those relationships that we talked about and, and invest in the community so that there was a figurehead school but also knowing that there were significant changes that needed to to happen to to help the school become the best that it could be so i being seconded over then gave me the chance to live and breathe it every day so initially i, I was brought in to job share with a, the key stage two teacher so it was three days leadership two days teaching um and the key stage two teacher in the early stages was looking before we'd even taken over at, at moving careers. Um, and she did that. So we then took on a really good key stage two teacher who basically changed the dynamic in school because one of the major issues we were looking at is frame behaviors, behaviors and attitudes in, in, in the older children. Um, partly because the environment around school was, you imagine all schools are talk about budgets uh, and how poor they've been over the last sort of 10, 15 years. But this small rural school with declining numbers, the buildings and the environment was was tired to say the very least. So there's things along the lines of the old Victorian building had um, storage heaters um, and where there should have been six storage heaters, there were two that worked. So children were working in a cold, damp environment. Um, the display boards that, that were on walls were but all around them with flaking paint. So the environment didn't look very loved because, and not through because there wasn't a lot of love in school, because the staff were dedicated and loved the school, but the buildings and premises had just come into such a state of disrepair that it was almost sinking sand that they were fighting against. And the more they fought, it, the kind of harder it got. So I think that kind of trickled down to the children. So there was a really obvious, right, we need to do something around these buildings. We need to show, we need to put bricks and mortar, show that there's some real care and love in, in this environment and in this school, and then foster that in the children. Because if we're encouraging them to take pride and care in their school, the, the transitional phase of that is about how you then take pride and care in your work, how you treat one another, how we're a community. But you need a foundation to build on. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the early stages liaising with the local authority around buildings and maintenance, bringing in hot water, working contractors. Um, and that was a big investment in time. But simple things like at lunchtime and break time, going out with a big sweeping brush and getting the children to sweep up and and just 
basic maintenance things about showing that we care for our school and it's a really important part of our, of, of who we are. Um, so as a starting point, getting the buildings right was a big, big investment in time. Because that then had a cascading effect, not only on the children, but on the staff, because they the at the point of taking over, the staff were flat about, about where the school was heading. There was lots of concern around the declining numbers, uh, the change of leadership. Um, the, the, the school had been declining for probably six, seven, eight years, and the numbers were getting to the stage where there were fears around the viability of the school. Um, and so that kind of motivation around school there was a lot of love the staff the teaching assistants for example who work here all of their children came here so they're invested in this this is this is something that's important to them and it's a personal thing doesn't it it becomes a personal thing when when you when your own children come to this school as well and perhaps you as a you know now as an adult but you went to the school previously that actually it's such a personal thing that actually it's part of your life that um, that actually change to that is quite hard sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and so if 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 you're if you've got that love and investment in school, the the way they in, interact with children never changed. They've always been wonderful with the children, but I just think it got to a point where their surroundings were so demoralising that it just they they felt a little bit like they'd lost their way. So coming in. It's- which we I'm sorry to interrupt as a as a new person coming in was it a bit like you having a new pair of eyes had it got uh, do you see what I mean and that sometimes I think you can be surrounded by something for so long and then not actually notice it after a while and I just wonder whether there was a case of that yeah I um I spoke to staff before doing this and saying what sort of things do you want me to talk about um and they they've given me a whole list of things that they would like to kind of share as their experience as well uh, and I think one of the things that um, a couple of the a teaching assistants shared with me is that when we came in and we were looking for for kind of those quick wins and those things that need improvement is that the, they didn't realize what was wrong until it was then pointed out and once they realized where the improvements needed to happen and they could see the improvements happening it was only once they could see the improvements happening they realised how where it got to, uh, and there was a lot of that reflection of we hadn't realised that what we were doing or where we were or that that display or that that area wasn't what it could be, and it's only now in hindsight that we realised that what a massive impact the changes have had. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, just in terms of timings, in terms of years, what what year are we talking about? Um, kind of roughly. I want to the the initial um, caretaker role came in. Uh, I've been here now eighteen months, so I started September twenty twenty one, and Amanda took the caretaker the, the exec head initially as a caretaker role in the December before, or the just the just before Boris shut us for the, the by telling us we were going to be open, and then closed the day after. So we took on the school at that point, which was a great time to take on a school. What a time to be alive! Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm just interested to know because actually, I think one of the the knock on effects of 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 lockdowns and of of the COVID pandemic has has been very much that actually schools where previously we used to go out a lot more and see other schools and and kind of visit other settings and go and have a look around somebody else's classroom. 
I think that that's decreased really over the last probably five years or so, maybe more. Um, I think education has changed. It's uh, you know people are working at such a flat out pace now that actually people don't tend to go out and see other settings as much as they used to. And then I think the COVID pandemic has really done for that as well in that you know we've, we've become quite insular or certainly in the last few years we were quite insular and I just wondered whether there was a a correlation between what you're saying and and that really. So I think it's a number of factors. COVID had its benefits and, and had had its difficulties for you. So when I referred earlier about um, behaviour and attitudes around key stage two children that was massively an impact of COVID because where they they almost lost that ability to play collaboratively. So coming in and coming back to school when we when we first when I first started we were trying having to kind of retrain children on how to interact which I know if you speak to lots of people through education they find the same experiences but for interestingly for us it was our key stage two children not our key stage one children who had that difficulty so we had to spend a lot of time about kind of retraining them on how to interact as uh, as groups of children and the the importance of working together on things the closing of school, so the, um, say Amanda taking on that caretaking role uh, and then a day later um, school being closed actually gave us time to really assess the buildings. So coming in and having that period of time to go, actually, gosh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And then being able to rally the troops around local authority and putting the pressure on to get things like the heating systems put in, hot water systems, and all of those things happened when the children... The school was closed and, and all our key workers were at, uh, at Alderston. So it had benefits. I think that the, you're right in saying about the getting out and seeing other schools. I think one of the things the school found really difficult in the past was it's, it's quite rural. It's quite out of the way. So getting out and seeing other schools, I think, was always a challenge. But I also think being a small school uh, and being identified by the local authority as being vulnerable, there was also a bit of a mismatch of, of support coming in. So they were getting advice from different places and there wasn't actually a great deal of coherence to it. Um, and I do think that, that this partnership model between the two schools, we're putting in somebody who actually lives and breathes it and spends their time, gets to know the community, is, has definitely been the right approach for this school. It's the, the piecemeal approach to, to school improvement didn't ever really get to the heart of what the school was about and what, what the school needed. Um, and I think probably there'll be listeners who will be having external advisors coming in and saying sort of things and not living and breathing it. And I do think that understanding the school and tackling it in specific but also broad ways is far more effective than just coming in and going, right, we're all going to use this scheme because this scheme works down the road. It didn't work here. So we could do we have to do something differently. And that that I suppose was the one of those major kind of shifting points for us is that we knew of things that worked and we knew of good schools down the road. We knew of uh, the successes of Alderston. Is what are we going to do this different to here to suit this setting? Because you can't just do the same thing as two, uh, as a single form entry school. It has to be different. We have to be braver and we have to do something that's right for this school. And the declining numbers showed that. So the school was, the school was, dropping off year after year in numbers and their intake coming in of like three children in reception class when with a pan of 11 was telling us and that actually the school isn't fit for 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 what's needed in this community we need to do something drastic different 
brave, exciting, uh, to create something quite special. And that's that was kind of the the big kind of pedagogical shift that was needed uh, and mindset shift that was needed. Okay, so so you started off with the with the physical, the kind of really getting the grips with with the building itself, the heating, the hot water, all of those sorts of things, which which are of course very clearly linked, and you know the maintenance of it is very clearly linked to what you're saying in terms of actually you know kind of raising expectations and raising raising the kind of the the learning attributes, you know that actually you know we're wanting to devalue something that actually we've got to show them that we value it too, you know all of those sorts of things. So so then you so you started with that, which of course is no mean feat anyway. Um, having got to that point where you, where the building was to a certain extent taken care of. What then happens? So, what then happens in terms of the the practice? So, the key stage one teacher, um, really experienced, been here for sort of fifteen, eighteen years, uh, and we sat down and we spent some time talking about what what this school means. What 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 does she see this school being all about, uh, and and how does she see? The teaching in key stage one what does she see are the difficulties what does she think of the, the way we should go about things uh, and we spent a lot of time exploring with stakeholders so spending time with governors spending time talking to the children spending time with staff talking about what what this school what it means to them and what it what they would what it means to be an Albury child what it means to be an Albury teacher uh, and one of the things that we discovered is that our approach to key stage one was very much I think, again, external pressures had been based on key stage one outcomes. And there was that real risk of it being too focused on year two and not focused enough on the the kind of the play-based learning. So one of the major shifts quite early on is that, again, when we were doing the buildings work, is that we had a, we've, we're in an old Victorian building. So it goes classroom, connecting old Victorian wooden glass divider uh, and then school hall dinner hall after school club area so through the conversation with that key stage, the key stage one lead it was really obvious that one of the things that we needed to do was shift from that formal sit down at a desk type learning that that happens more key stage two and and sadly kind of year two and and increasingly year one and actually focus on the play-based environments so we had to then change our environment to it so the, one of the things we did was that we we took out the dinner hall for example shifted that into what was an after school club area um take took out a lot of old it equipment and opened up this huge space which doubled the classroom size to put continuous provision in we then also invested in developing an outside area which was connected to that so we had a big area of land that which is grass just outside of the building that we used capital money to develop our outside area and really considered play-based learning for reception year one and year two because we were quite confident at that stage that the right thing for this school wasn't sit at a desk and try and be a teacher of three different classes it was take the best aspects of key stage EYFS and a play-based curriculum and continuous provision and that continuous provision through EYFS through DA2. And rather than teaching 30 children sat down, losing 25% of the top, losing 25% of the bottom, actually teach to adult-led groups. So our group size, when we do any sort of teaching, being like you a good EYFS would do and have groups of six, groups of two, 
probably no more than six or seven in a group at a time. So really shift the way we teach in Key Stage 1. And obviously all the building works that needed to go with that. So we spent a lot of time investing in, again, more buildings, more grounds, but actually to be able to create a really strong continuous provision area that was tailored for not just reception, but actually tailored for year two, year two learning as well and everything in between. And see, that's amazing, isn't it? That, and I think it's really interesting what you're saying about that kind of taking what was the dining area and absolutely moving it completely. That's a massive change for the school, isn't it? You know, that's a huge thing. Where suddenly I'm having to think, well, crikey, that's not even the dining hall anymore. And then what's coming in its place? That's a huge shift, isn't and it? knock-on effects, right? So not only was it changing the dining hall, because we then created a dining space that was smaller, we, we did things like we created a free flow lunches. So rather than us having sittings where the children sat down from 12 to half past, half past to one o'clock, where if it, because of small staff numbers, there were children would finish their dinner within five, 10 minutes and they would be sitting there becoming bored essentially. So we created these free flow lunches where we'd have the children choose when to eat. So if they wanted to go outside and play and then come in a bit later, they could, if they wanted to eat straight away and actually having a lot of ownership and responsibility around their own lunches. So they weren't having to eat at 12 o'clock because that was their sitting. They could wait until 10 to, they could sit with whoever they wanted and actually embracing our interage groups. So we'll have a reception child who'll come and have their lunch with one of the year five children and they'll be talking about the football that they played on the weekend and it's this very different dynamic shift because we had smaller space but it gave us opportunity rather than became a problem it's yeah absolutely it's kind of turning it on its head and saying well actually yes that you could you could look at that and think well that's a negative in terms of like say a smaller space or whatever else but instead what you're doing is you're playing to your strengths and saying well actually it means that within within our community within our school community what we can offer is and that's and that's something that's very particular to you isn't it that's something that we couldn't offer you couldn't possibly do that um school you know you possibly offer that but you can you can build on the relationships that your children have with one another and with the staff and going back to those kind of basics around kind of those expectations around giving the children that trust and responsibility to manage their own lunch times of course we've we've got fail safes in place to make so some children don't completely miss their lunch um but giving them that responsibility of sorting their own cutlery out, scraping their own plates, stacking their plates, wiping the tables on the end, having the, actually we're in this together and having this lunch looking different gave us a whole different dynamic at lunch times because unstructured times quite often there were times when you get your behavioral challenges. So that our structure inside to create a really good continuous provision area an outside continuous provision area uh, for for reception through year two had a domino effect onto lunch but actually gave us these really exciting opportunities to take lunch times in a completely different way uh, and it's it works our children the one of the things they absolutely love is the fact that they can choose who they sit with when they sit where they sit um it and it, we don't, and we're not interrupting their play at lunchtime, for example. So we we do things like um, we take a speaker out, and they have dance parties at lunchtime, and we have um, play leaders who will lay, lead a football game or a game of duck duck goose, or and the children haven't got to stop halfway through that when things are going well to go and have their lunch. They can finish their game, finish the song that they're listening to. There's space in the hall now; they can go and have their lunch. So it gives them that responsibility, and it gives them that ownership and that sense of purpose and belonging that's really important for for such a small school. 
Yeah. No, I think that sounds brilliant. It does, say, and it takes away the stress out of some of those transitions at lunchtime. You know, the somebody, you know, traditionally somebody kind of blowing a whistle, and they, yeah. you know, all of those transitions that many children will find very difficult and stressful, actually are taking away a lot of that. Which I think that sounds great. Yeah, it sounds yeah, fantastic. And in terms of like uh, things like um, uh, having a, an environment that then supports the needs of different learners, that's things like a a free flow lunch gives children who maybe my daughter needs to eat straight away she's that child she just is hungry it's lunchtime i need to eat so she'd love the fact that she could go straight and eat whenever she wanted um whereas we've got children who can't cope with with the with the, the dinner hall being busy so they need quieter time so they wait right until the end and it's quieter and they they actually really enjoy the process of sitting and having a quieter lunch they're not rushed they can take their time if, a, if one of our reception child's it takes 30, 40 minutes to eat their lunch. There's no pressure. They can take their time to eat. And usually one of our older children will sit there and keep them company. So again, all those like opportunities for that reception child, they haven't got the pressure of eating their dinner quickly. For the child who needs it quieter, they can have it quieter. For the child who actually, a good development for when the older children is understanding that caring and looking after others and putting someone's needs before yourself, great life experience, great life lesson that, just happens naturally isn't about us telling that they have to do that yeah yeah and and it's and it's it's doable isn't it you know within within your context you can absolutely do that you can play to your strengths as as i say no brilliant Um, can we go back to the the classroom um context if that's all right so you were talking about how you've got um the you've got reception year one year two together within one room Okay, and that you had kind of had a a sort of a, a a moment where you'd step back from it as a as a new acting head coming in. You'd sort of step back from it and thought, well, actually, what we really need for our community is something which is is more hands on, more inquiry based, more play based. Um, and so, what you're talking about is you're going from you're building on the EYFS practice, building that up from the EYFS onwards, rather than kind of coming into it and going, well, if we're really going to have effective practice, we need to start with year two and kind of water down what the year two children are getting until we get to a point where the reception children can manage it. Does that make sense? And I, and I, I wonder whether that's, I, I just I wonder whether actually, is that, a, is that a big shift then? You know, previously, were you doing something very different to that? Yeah, so it was a really significant shift because I think the priority was, like I said earlier, the, the kind of the year two outcomes was always a big pressure point, wasn't it? There was external pressures from from inspectors, from local authorities that that to get good key stage one results um, probably dictated a little bit too much about the structure. It's also somewhat easier to do that traditional style of teaching where you sit down at a desk, it's all a bit more like you'd see in a key stage two. It's a bit easier for management. It's, it's the teacher being, having tight boundaries. Um, but actually, it wasn't working. So that huge shift about prioritising and, and basically looking at what works really well in the EYFS, thinking about characteristics of learning, thinking about how children's brains develop and, and how children choose to learn as opposed to what makes maybe life easier around those structural norms. Um, to do something that was prioritizing play, uh, and I and it, it's interesting. I've done some work with various kind of leaders over the years, and play quite often sounds like a naughty word. 
We don't we don't send the children to play. We send them to discover. We, we send them essentially. What we're saying is that we want children to play and all of the good stuff that comes from play, that exploration, the social dynamics, the resilience, all of that, all of those things come from play. So we prioritize play, and what that meant was that for our EYFS, we were always we were just doing the good stuff that we were always doing. For our year one, uh, and this will resonate with quite a lot of year one teachers. They haven't got that um, that sense of loss that they get moving into year one of, oh, I really like reception. I played, and we don't play anymore. We 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 learned, and that that kind of that shift you get in year one. Um, so our year ones that got more structured time around teaching uh, adult led focus groups, um, but they still got to play. So rather than having an hour-long or 50, 45-minute maths, uh, maths lesson, their maths lesson being on a rotation where they'd have maybe 15, 20 minutes with an adult, but really purposeful, really impactful, and differentiation being so much easier because they're still doing the same maths lesson as the other year ones, but how you adjust that lesson doesn't necessarily need to be through the different worksheets, which... I don't know, will make lots of people's toes curl. Um, it, it, it's not about that. It's about pitching that learning to that group. So using different types of manipulatives, using, right, this group actually were better up and getting up and doing something rather than sitting in a circle and talking and moving counters. We need to go and physically get up and go and move because that works for this group. So we could differentiate far easier with the same outcomes in the moment through these small adult-led groups. But also that knowledge that they can go and then use that that knowledge they develop through their adult like groups, incorporate it into their continuous provision. So having those opportunities, if you're doing measure in your maths lessons, having really good quality provision around measure and that being just incorporated in the continuous provision. So they were still they're still getting measure, they're still getting that that skill, but actually they're applying it independently or with like that adult-led kind of intervention to push things along. So that's a very different approach. And doing that same thing for our year twos had a massive impact because they're really focused in their adult-led groups because they know this is focus time, because they know they're about to have time to play as well. So their whole well-being, the whole teaching and learning side of things just became a far more enjoyable experience for the children. The flip. The, the kind of the flip side of that is in the initial stages, it was a real headache for the teachers because they'd had to completely scrap the way that you, this is how we've done it. So logistically, the kind of trying to get all those cogs to turn and spin took some doing and it took a lot of trial and error and we got it, didn't get it perfectly right all of the time. But when it was really established, it was like clockwork um, and it's, and it's, smooth and it's the teacher will say it's far less stressful to teach this way it's far more enjoyable it's far more impactful so there's a slightly delayed version for the for the teachers they they saw the benefits slightly later yeah yeah beginning yeah no it's it's really interesting i i it's there are a couple of things that i noticed i i think when you're talking about play you're talking about play as something which is very much integrated into the day as part of the learning experience, not something which is a kind of something you do in between the teaching and the next lot of teaching. Do you know? Which is sometimes what happens, I think, is 
as the children get older, sometimes what happens is play gets seen as something that you do in between the teaching and learning times. Whereas actually, I think the picture that you're painting is of practice that really values hands-on learning or inquiry-based learning or play or whatever you want to call it as something which is very much a part and parcel of our day and that is timetabled as part of the day and it is carefully planned for in terms of the learning experience. So it's not just holding kind of thing. And and really interesting that it's then having the impact. Yeah. So kind of initial stages, we were like, we, as I say, when we took the school on uh, in, I, I started in 2021, we, there was no one around us that was doing something similar. Um, so we, in terms of training, we did a lot of uh, sort of online videos. Uh, we've, we, we tapped into some of the early excellence resources. Uh, we went in to visit some schools outside of our local authority that were taking this approach. Um, and that was really helpful seeing other schools doing this because it's little, small wins make big differences so things like having um high quality texts everywhere you look has an impact because in our design area having books with good design illustrations that are really thought through not just thrown in because they're books about design means that the children have something to look at that will inspire their activities and the same in the role play areas the same in the writing areas high quality resources rather than just lots of resources high quality really considers linked to the learning objectives in the key stage one um, uh, curriculum and the teaching that's going, but also using that ability to, to recall previous learning. So having in the maths area um, activities that link back to things they did six weeks ago to help consolidate that learning that happened before. So it not just being wishy-washy play, and that low-level play and just let them get on with it because it's easier for the teacher for them just to be busying themselves. Really purposeful, really thought through environments, activities, uh, enhanced provision, as well as the really solid continuous provision. So it's, it's, it was quite a pedagogical shift um, for school and for staff. Yeah. yeah. I would imagine that the timetable had to change a fair bit, did it? In order to, uh, in order to, happen, yeah. I would imagine that the timings of the day would need to shift a bit. Is that right? Yeah. So things like, um, uh, and I know lots of schools do this. That we did, we don't do a morning break time uh, in Key Stage One. It was because we were interrupting high quality play for run rounds playground, um, which has its place and there's an importance to that. Um, but that continuation through the morning um, and that ability to free flow and at that timetable around the which maths group happens when, which who does what in, uh, in like booster, mop up. If you've got a phonics group that's struggling, timetabling your TAs, you still need to do all those really rigorous, robust things. But how you then picture it in, it's a bit more of cogs turning as opposed to a linear timetable. Yeah. In, in that, when we're talking about children accessing that provision that you mentioned before, it's we've we've also got to make sure that we give them time haven't we to be able to do that well so if we're saying actually we're going to give you high quality resources so we've really planned for the materials and resources that are in those areas and and there's a really high expectation of the quality of what you're going to do with those materials we can't then stop them after 10 minutes and say right i know i know i know you haven't finished but you know what i mean it's it's stop and if you stop and start and stop and start you don't get the quality even if you've got quality resources. So so kind of the timetable has to shift, doesn't it, to allow for the time to get the quality as well. 
sure, and as well that, that sort of interrupting the, the the learning through play aspect actually inevitably when you're trying to have these cogs turning you're going to have that so putting in measures to help manage that is really good so things like little like work in progress signs so if a child is, is using the construction blocks to build something they get a, a work in play sign um, a work in progress sign and the other children know that they have to respect that somebody was working on that and they can go back to it so that that help them with the continuation but also understanding as the week went on so it wasn't just about that day the week we can have construction projects that will last a whole week um and the the whole room can be taken over by things because it then becomes about the children's exploring of learning not the right okay it's three o'clock we have to pack everything away now it's about thinking about the time in a slightly different way to give them more opportunities to do some really deep purposeful thinking and learning yes yeah no it sounds uh, yeah absolutely fantastic yeah and and such a difference from what you were talking about previously as well which is i think again very interesting um i understand also you've developed um outdoors so inside and outdoors and that 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 you know you talked earlier on about having you've got kind of such a lot of space around you and you know such a fantastic site um but that actually one of the things that you've done is you've looked at how can we use that outdoor space for learning um can you tell us a bit about that yeah so i i don't i sitting here i don't pretend to be any sort of expert on early years um i i i, I might uh, talk very confidently about what we've done and i'm really proud of what we achieved but i'm no early years expert um i'm i've just come in and, and seen what's right for our community and then spoken to people who who have a real passion for the early years and for the for learning around play and and that creative approach to teaching and learning. So my job's been to empower and enable staff to do that uh, and not feel like it's a um, a, a negative to, to prioritize play based learning. Um, but I think that probably stems from the fact that one of the best professional development things I've done over the years was I trained to be a forest school leader and. There's lots of parallels between forest school and early years teaching. So coming into a, a small rural school, uh, as I have, and one of the first conversations about how do you utilise your outside space um, and finding out that actually it wasn't very utilised um, meant that we it was a really quick, big win was to really start developing the use of the outdoors. So we're very lucky we've got tons tons of space but also some really good forested space um so at the front of our school we've got a whole woodland area which was overgrown not really used so as a forest school leader one of the first things i did is i started a weekly forest school sessions um and getting the children outdoors to, to for the older children to do all those things that we said the key stage one children do so that learning to fall out get on challenge themselves take risks uh manage their play get muddy um Doing that with the older children was is, I think, one of the most important things that we do for our key stage two children is that weekly forest school session where they can actually play, because our key stage two is a bit more structured in the way you'd expect most key stage two classes to be structured. Um, so we set up forest school. Um, we quickly uh, took on a forest school lead again just to release some capacity for me really as a small school spinning lots of plates having somebody come in and do weekly sessions uh, was really important and he's a really passionate forest school leader uh, and he's really skilled really very good at what he does 
um, and he does a whole day with us on a Wednesday. Um, takes the key, uh, alternates mornings, afternoons for key stage one, key stage two, and they do that all year round, or whatever the weather, um, and really get stuck into a different sort of outdoor, outdoor play because our key stage one outdoor play, we protected it from mud. There's still the usual sand pits, mud kitchens, all really a bit kind of more thought through and structured. Our forest school is a, there's a mud pit, there's a pond, there's trees to climb, there's dens to build, there's, there's hammers, nails, saws, all the kind of big tools that we couldn't just in a free flow area of, uh, of uh, key stage one. So it's a very different experience, but but lots of parallels between the two. Um, and a, a, a huge development for our school site. So it's it was a bit of overgrown woodland. It's now a really beautiful developed forest area uh, where the children every week absolutely look forward to and love going to. Um, and it's given us opportunities to do things in school that maybe you Without the forest school, we wouldn't be able to do. So little examples are things like tool use. Um, we have uh, simple tools in our key stage one that are there for the children to use. Um, so hammers, uh, low, small nails, and they're in an area that is indirectly supervised. So your first thought is risk assessments, health and safety, what a nightmare, how can you kind of leave things like that? But actually it's our children are really proficient with tool use and there's a lot of trust and responsibility around how they look after things and they gain that through the one-to-one tool use with their forest school leader. They're using big saws, they're using big hammers. They can manage those tools. So actually then when you put it into their continuous provision, it's just the tools you use and this is how you manage them this is how you're safe um that doesn't mean that we leave axes floating around in the early years or anything along those lines but simple tools it is interesting because that does relate very closely doesn't it to the to that kind of forest schools approach of teaching how to use a tool and, and you know, even down to kind of this is how we carry this this is how we how we use it this is how we put it away or you know all of those sorts of things that become almost like a mantra don't they as you're going through the week of forest schools training of of, of going through it this is how we use a particular tool this is how we carry it hold it put it away walk with it whatever else and to the point where actually you do that in forest schools you can then bring that into your practice to a certain extent with some of those tools and that's sometimes different isn't it to uh to a kind of it's similar but different to a kind of a continuous provision area in that say so you say you have a, a water area within an early within a classroom an early years classroom or key stage one classroom yes you would show the children how to use it and model it but there would be a, a fair degree of of an understanding more you kind of know what you would do with a bucket to a certain point you would know what you could do with you know some tubing and a, and a funnel you know etc or you can explore it Whereas with, with say, woodwork tools, hammers, nails, etc., you you're very much teaching it, aren't you? You're teaching that skill, and then you are giving the children the opportunity to use that skill. So there's, there's similarities but differences, I think, aren't yeah. there? Yeah, and I think it's, the, it's the, the levels of risk that you can, you can have in forest school and just kind of supervised, skilled practitioner, and then... That, that free flow continuous provision obviously the, the levels of risk that are allowable are very different um 
And I think that the 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 impact of that that skills that they develop in forest school, that resilience, those those ability to for it to go wrong, it to for failing, the 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 time you have to invest to achieve things. Again, it all links back to those kind of early things that we were talking about, instilling in the children around what it means to be an old child. Um, and it just fits really well into that big picture about that whole list, uh, holistic development that we're trying to get from our children. So that when they leave us to go to secondary school, from leaving this really safe, small environment, actually they've developed a lot of resilience and robustness. Um, so that when they go to secondary, actually they're pretty sound and secure because they've got a good sense of who they are. And forest school plays a big, big part of that. Um, it's also given us opportunities as well to kind of reach out to our community. So on a um, once a week in a morning, on a Friday morning, we run a forest tot, uh, which is open to the local community and well, actually open to anyone who's willing to travel to us um, for children from 18 months up to preschool age. Um, and they attend with parents. And then Alex, our forest school lead, does forest tots sessions with 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 really little children and parents and that that does lots of things when it, it, it's a really important thing for our community because it could be quite isolating living in this part of the world um but it also brings them into a group so there's a group of parents who can and explore the outdoors which are really we find really important in terms of around mental health and well-being but it also helps with future transitions so we will have children attending our forest tots who will one day become children in our school. In our school. Um, some that would never have maybe become children in our school had they not attended Forest Tots, um, but some that definitely would have anyway. But it acts as a really good transition tool for children who will be joining us in September and reception because they've had 10 months of attending weekly Forest School sessions on the school site. They have positive attachments to school. And also we, we know we'll pick up children who wouldn't have seen what we're all about had it not been for this this forest tots and getting their foot in the door and spending time with our staff and and seeing what our culture and ethos is so it's it's a win-win our forest tots really yeah Yeah. i can say that it would work very much from from the children and the family's point of view but also from your point of view being able to really celebrate what you do um the um i meant to say actually when i when i had to look at your website yesterday i was really found that really impressive that actually when you look at the staff page in, and you know, it lists and, and it has a photograph of each member of staff that um, in, a, in what is really quite a small staff group, there is your forest school's leader there. And I thought, well, actually, that's quite unusual within a small school, I think. You know, I've, I've, I've worked with quite large schools where actually, you know, because they've got such a huge amount, you know, huge staff team, actually, you know, they have got a forest school's leader as well as but actually within a small school, that is such a signpost, isn't it, to what you value, I think, you know, and, and what you celebrate. And I think that, that speaks volumes, really. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that we've, um, obviously, when we when we first came in, there was, there was these inevitable budget things you look at. Um, and again, I said about priority, what you prioritise, there's all those jobs, that, things that you need to do as a leader or as a teacher in a school. I'm talking about spending that time talking to parents, getting to know them, spending time with the children, all of those priorities. It works the same things around staffing structures. So things sh- showing kind of what type of kind of compassionate and, and emotionally intelligent leaders do is looking at what's really important for our school. So having Alex, our forest school leader, 
it's a big investment. But actually, what we gain from it is far more significant than the financial investment. We also invest in um, an ELSA who comes to school once a week, which for a school this size is is quite a lot. Um, but again, it's, it's one of those non-negotiables because, yes, we could be saving X amount of money a year and kind of having a slightly healthier looking budget. But actually, that ELSA has, uh, Yolera ELSA has this amazing role in school and is really valued by the children and by the staff and by the parents and it's worth their Alex and Yola are both worth their weight in gold because they can achieve things that that without them would fall on a class teacher would fall on uh, 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 the, the leadership as problems as opposed to solutions so we'd be picking things up after when actually we can put all these preventative things in place and these supportive and developmental things that actually build our children far more in a far more rounded way so that we haven't maybe got that lunchtime argument because they've had the ELSA groups to understand how to interact and the children are then happier so we're not dealing with an argument we're we're giving them tools to be successful from the very beginning and it's a big investment but it's the right investment Yes, yes. So, so you're kind of you're not spending your time kind of putting out fires almost. You know, dealing with the dealing with something after it's happened. You're kind of putting it in up front, really, and building those skills. Which which brings us in actually quite nicely to what I was going to ask you about. I know I know it's relatively kind of early on, I suppose, in terms of the the development of lots of this and the impact of it will will actually be seen probably kind of in an ongoing way. But I wondered about you know you you've, you've obviously brought in such a lot in terms of the change, changes to the building, changes to the uh, learning environment, the way that you are working, in, particularly as, as part of your early years and Key Stage 1, your access to the outdoors, all sorts of different things that have, that have been brought in as changes, po- really positive changes. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the children? You've mentioned some of those things, but I wondered what sort, what's the impact? You know, if you were to, to nail it in terms of impact, what are you seeing? Not just in terms of data, but in terms of the children as well. What, what are you seeing? So I think you're quite right in really saying that some of the impact we won't see. And I actually think some of the impact we will never see. Um, a lot of what we're doing around those kind of early um, childhood experiences, I think will have an impact for these children way beyond the primary setting. I think there'll be things that, that we're doing around that brain development, that holistic development, those characteristics of learning that will sit with those children right the way through to adult life. Um, and we won't necessarily be able to quantify or measure that, but actually knowing that all of these things that we put in place, and there's a lot of bodies, there's, there's a good body of research around there, around that brain development and the, the impact that can have for later life, will will pay dividends to make that child's life. So some of it we won't necessarily be able to quantify and measure. What we can see is engagement levels are far higher than they were pre-play-based learning in Key Stage 1. The children are more focused and engaged. Behaviour across school is amazing. The children are nurtured, loved, cared for, nourished, they, they, they have an environment where they're flourishing. So behavior management across school is almost minimal. When I first came in, I was, I was firefighting behavior management on a daily basis. Um, whereas now behavior is, there's, there's the usual falling out. There's the disagreements, which you need. You need that normal learning how to fall out, get things wrong, say things you shouldn't have said so you can learn from it. So we get those. 
but actually it's all very low level learning behavior as opposed to disruptive or violent or any of those really kind of difficult behaviors you have to challenge facing schools so behavior has definitely had an impact attitudes to learning has shifted completely children see a point in what they're doing they see a value in what they're doing and they can see what they're doing is valued so the children are keen to do they want to do the best that they possibly can so that's a really huge impact for around those attitudes and and kind of looking at how they see themselves as learners we've seen the impact in data so because we can focus in our groups and have it more tailored actually the progress the children are making is better they're spending less time doing structured formal learning but actually the impact of what they do of what we're doing is greater so the learning is more obvious uh, and quicker so the pace of uh, progress is has actually improved dramatically over the last 18 months even though they're spending less time doing formal tasks as such so we can see the impact on data, we can see the impact on motivation, we can see the impact on uh, behavior, attitudes. Um, so across school, all of these things that we, that we believed in, have we can see that they're having a day-to-day impact. We've also, we talked about the pressures of offset. When we first took this on, as I said, there weren't any local schools doing similar sort of things. It felt a bit of a risk um, because, as much as we hate to say schools do things for Ofsted, schools do things for Ofsted because they're unfortunately this all-knowing power that puts too much pressure on, on schools. So we did it despite of Ofsted. We did it knowing that this was the right thing for our, our school. And when we had our inspection, we had a, a senior HMI and she absolutely could see what we were doing and why we're doing and the impact of it and was really taken aback about how we're doing what we're doing um, and was really, really positive about it, but was also really appreciative of where we were on the journey and that understanding that where we are now isn't where the school will be in five years. Um, So we had a lot of validation from Ofsted, but actually the key bits of validation for us have come from our parents, come from our children and come from our staff because when we do parent surveys the parents you without any kind of reservations talk about how successful the school is how happy the children are how well the children are doing we we get very 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 little negative feedback um staff are happy staff are keen to be here they enjoy coming to work we have very very low sickness um and and uh, attendance issues staff are in every day um which means very little covering um sometimes i have to send them home sort of uh, a bit too resilient sometimes like no you're actually poorly go home um and and, and so staff, staff can see it so so staff have got this positive relationship with everything we're doing and can see that the school's on this really positive journey parents are really positive about what we're doing and the children are happy and skipping to school every day so the impact Ofsted yes is there as a national validation but actually the validation really for us comes to our parents and our community and our staff and our children yeah absolutely in a way you don't need the the you know an Ofsted inspection to tell you that it's working do you that actually you can see it can't you you can you know from all of the things that you're saying actually you can see it um which which I suppose um 
kind of leads me on to the the final thing I was going to ask you about, which uh, was that um, you've done all of these things with, within a, a kind of a relatively short period of time. So you kind of you could easily be kind of you could easily think, well, actually, what we need to do now is to kind of embed it really and kind of not sort of keep moving, but actually to make sure that we keep these things in place. But I was just intrigued to, to know whether there was something else that you've got planned or kind of a, what, you know, kind of what's next kind of questions, I suppose, really. what is there something else that's coming up for you that you think actually that will be our next thing? Yeah. So, so again, we had that validation around from, from kind of our parents and our existing community. Um, but one of the things that we found is that since doing or taking this approach, that word of mouth has spread. So school numbers have, have risen quite dramatically. We So um, September 2021, we were about 38 children. Um, we're now up to 52. Um, so we've had a lot of in-year transfers. Um, next academic year, we've got an oversubscribed intake, which is the first time for the school in I don't know how long. Um, uh, we've currently got a waiting list for our key stage one class, which the school has never had before. Um, so all of a sudden, the success has has kind of spread. So we've, we've the reputation of school is is now really strong. Um, so I quite often do in uh, tours, um, and then have to say I'm really sorry. We won't have a place. We might have a place in September, but but at the, as it currently stands, we don't have a place. Um, so that's really nice because where the school was a declining school with numbers, we're now getting to the stage where we were actually full. So next year, we're going back to that whole three-class model, which gives opportunity, but also means that we can have to make some really considered changes around what are we doing as a three-class model. So things like curriculum and all that works. Our approach to teaching and learning, that's going to stay the same. Looking at structures and how we will approach our three-class model is where it gets interesting, because the logical thing to do would be to split our key stage two class um, and have a, a reception one, two, and then a three, four, and then a five, six. Um, but actually, looking at the numbers and the potential growth of school in the longer term, we are looking at other models, which might include, rather than a, a three, four split, a two, three split, which on paper, most people would go look at and think, well, that seems like that's the hardest split you could possibly put in place. When there are other options, that's surely that's the worst of the law. But actually, what that gives us is, is opportunity. If we put a 2-3 split in, we've seen a massive success of having reception through to year two. If we then did um, a transitional point of um, year two into year three, um, a continuous provision, that would give us a far better stepping stone from reception key stage one key stage two into upper key stage two so we're thinking essentially looking at how we would take those strengths from key stage one and actually set up a continuous provision approach of sorts in a year two three um which will again be very different to 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 most of the yeah. schools no, no, to be honest that makes perfect sense to me I, I i understand completely what you're saying in terms of the kind of the kind of going from a kind of key stage one to key stage two kind of split is could be potentially a bit awkward but at the same time um the natural split in terms of development is is to split year one and year two up 
in that actually at year two, at seven, you tend to get a difference in terms of child development. Um, and traditionally, what we what we do is we put year one and year two together when actually the two year groups are very different in terms of development. Um, and there's usually a change in development more around the years, around seven years of age, where children are far better usually at following instruction and at not having quite so many, not quite the same need in terms of manipulatives uh, as you get to seven and, and above. Uh, whereas up until that point, we very much need that hands-on learning approach. And so I think reception in year one together actually makes far more sense if you're going if you're going to link link year groups together. So now I think that sounds really interesting. And if you think about it, a lot of, um, and again, there'll be a lot of people listening and saying that usual year three difficulty. So there's certain year groups who say, oh, year three, they find it so hard transitioning from key stage one. And there's a reason for that. So like you say, that co- connection between year two and three makes actually a lot more sense as that transitional year groups yeah definitely absolutely um lee I, i'm aware of time and i've kept you for way too long um so i'm i'm really yeah i'm really 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 grateful and it's so interesting to listen to you you know it's been fascinating to hear the journey that you've been on as a school kind of from where you were to where you are now and the kind of the impact of that on the children and clearly the community and how the how the school sits within that community is really powerful, I think. So it's been brilliant to talk to you. And thank you ever so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure our listeners will have found this really, really interesting. So yes, th- thank you ever so much. Thank you, Andy. It's been, it's, uh, it was a, a, a lovely thing to do, to share the successes of, of a very small rural school um, where so many rural schools will be finding things difficult. And actually, there's there's different ways of doing it. So it's quite nice to, to really share that and, and, and share our experiences over the last uh, 18 months, two years. So thanks very much. So there you go. Thank you very much to Lee for joining us on this week's episode of the podcast. I think a really inspirational listen. It's so good to listen to the journey that the school has been on. Really inspirational stuff there. Um, thank you also to you people for listening along as well. Have a great week, everybody, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.